Hi, I'm Katie and welcome to my podcast, My Rare Disease. This is a platform where I raise awareness of something that affects 1 in 17 people, rare disease. By chatting to patients, health professionals and advocates, we talk about all aspects of rare disease, including relationships, mental health and much more. I cannot wait for you to hear some truly inspiring stories and for the amazing guests to share their health experiences. In this episode, we learn about David's rare disease, occipital horn syndrome, as well as some of the day-to-day challenges people with rare disease can encounter, including finding affordable travel insurance, additional barriers within the education system, and visiting new hospitals where you're having to teach professionals about your rare disease. We discuss how awareness in all of these areas are really important, but also how David's rare disease has steered him to now work in the rare disease sector. Today I'm recording with David and we're going to be, um, well, kind of discussing some more, I say light-hearted moments, but perhaps moments that you haven't considered that you may have to think about in everyday life with a rare disease, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, thank you, David. How are you today? Yeah, very well, yeah. Almost the weekend, so yeah, can't complain. Oh yeah, good point. <laughs> um, so before we get started, would you mind just saying a bit about your rare disease and the background of it? Yeah, sure. So, um, so yeah, I'm David. Uh, I'm 32. I have a ultra rare disease called occipital horn syndrome. Um, occipital horn syndrome, or it's called OHS. Uh, it's kind of like a milder version of something called Menkes disease, which is a slightly more well-known uh, rare disease. The gene itself is called ATP7A. Um, so essentially, it's a copper deficiency. Um, and it's also a kind of connective tissue disorder. So kind of also similar to something called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which again is a bit more well-known these days than it was certainly 20 plus years ago. Um, so I was diagnosed in 2016 um, at Edinburgh's Hospital in Cambridge. Um, it was after some genetics testing for lasted about two years or two to three years, I think it was, um, where they obviously check your family history and see, see if there's any links anywhere. Um, I was diagnosed originally with um, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome when I was about two at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Um, It was never a formal diagnosis, it was more of something to kind of work with, Um, but obviously essentially they were were pretty close with their their answer. Um, Yeah. So what kind of symptoms were you experiencing before you were diagnosed? Um, So it was a few few different things, so uh, one of the kind of uh, more more obvious things was that uh, I didn't start walking until I was gone to um, I kind of skipped the crawling stage um, and after kind of like a bit of google research actually it's quite common even even people that are healthy that sometimes just don't uh, if they're late to walking they sometimes just don't bother with the crawling stage and um, going back to the kind of original diagnosis um, as part of the connective tissue disorder it affects all of my musculoskeletal system so one of the things is that it's very obvious where my elbows and my knees uh, and my ankles, they're all kind of inverted inwards. And um, so I'm, I'm very flat fisted and, and you can kind of see it really like I'm very narrow chested and um, sort of n- narrow shoulders in that respect as well. Um, and obviously as you were kind of walking, it, was, it became more obvious. Um, I had joint pain and also kind of internally the, um, like the kidney and the bladder were kind of experiencing a few things. One of the other things that they noticed when I was uh, literally just a few months old is um, had a heart murmur uh, mm-hmm. and also at six weeks old I had my first operation to repair 
um, one of the hernias, and obviously that's become a recurring theme, obviously since I was born up until now. Um, and that as kind of the connective tissue disorder aspect of the condition, um, <clears throat> that's one of the problems because you can kind of repair it as much as you want, but essentially it's going to keep bursting through. Um, so I've had that kind of literally from when I was a baby up until now, um, and I'm actually waiting to get that repaired again. Treatment wise, I know you've had a lot of surgeries, but apart from surgery, are there, are there any other treatments available? Um, so there's there's sort of treatments that there's obviously there's no cure uh, for my condition. There's no sort of research into it as such. But uh, in terms of treatments, I guess it's kind of similar to how somebody with Ehlers-Danlos would would be doing. So um, obviously, kind of pre-COVID, uh, sort of physiotherapy, uh, occupational therapy to try and help with sort of day to day things but also um hydrotherapy actually was probably one of the best things that i've done so i don't know if people have had this before but um it's in a really warm swimming pool um and it's like doing like a very light sort of gym workout i think is probably the best way to explain it um but obviously because you're in the water like your body's uh, like the burden you take normally is disappears because obviously you're like the water kind of covers everything um i honestly cannot speak highly of it enough um it's one of the best things I've ever done. Hopefully I can try and, you know, after COVID has kind of calmed down a bit, I'm hoping to kind of be able to go back to do that because that's some, that's probably, you know, out of all the things, that's probably been the most sort of relief of pain. So that's, yeah, that was probably the best thing. Um, again, like I've been a bit lazy even before COVID of going to the gym and things. I need to try and get a little bit better with that. But, um, but yeah, kind of exercise is encouraged as much as possible. Um, you know, it's just, it's kind of yeah, essentially how it would be for anybody else. So um they're, they're the main things really um i take obviously quite a few pain medications which are, are good and bad in different ways i guess i think that something that is common in the rare and even not rare for just anybody that's taking painkillers long term is the battle of trying to take enough painkillers to kind of alleviate pain but not too much so that you can't function there's kind of a uh, an equilibrium point in the middle um and even after kind of 32 years i still don't think i've really found it so you know, I've been taking um, lots of strong painkillers since I was about eight or nine, I suppose. Um, obviously, 32 now. So um, it's kind of just kind of quite difficult to try and manage the right way. I, when I've been younger, um, I found that kind of it made more sense now as I'm looking back on it as an adult. But kind of when I was a teenager, I was really struggling to sort of um, function at school and to stay awake and to like really concentrate on what's going on. Um, and I think that that was kind of proven by the fact um, academically I did better every um, leap I did so obviously I didn't do brilliantly really with my GCSEs but um, did well with my A-levels did well at my degree and kind of after that it kind of flourished so I think I was a bit of a late developer to kind of to the education world in some respect because I think I really learned my body more uh, when I was about 18, 19 and I think that's mm -hmm. where it kind of picked off um, so yeah I think the, the painkiller thing is definitely a, an interesting conversation I think everybody will have a different opinion on it but I think I've you know got some grasp on it now but still way off I think it's it, you know every every painkiller is different and I take more than one kind of painkiller so you kind of take one thing for one thing but then you're kind of uh, doing different problems you're causing other problems so like one of them uh, one of the side effects of one of them uh, is that it reduces my blood pressure but I'm taking other things to try and increase my blood pressure because it's low anyway so you have to try and balance or you know speaking with different doctors and different departments you have to try and balance which is is the right way to do it yeah definitely it's kind of like wait, also weighing up the benefits versus side effects because obviously as you said you're taking different types of painkillers which obviously can mix 
but mm-hmm. it's kind of weighing up if the benefits are better than the side effects, but also having to put up with the side effects. Like that's that can yeah. be difficult, can't it? That's it. Yeah, you just have to get it right. I think it's um, obviously the the painkillers are kind of one thing, but I take things for my bladder and um, kind of anti sort of anti bladder spasming tablets. Take a few different things that kind of do the same sort of thing. Um, obviously, take steroids as well. Um, so obviously, that's kind of a different way to to treat things, but. Um, and sort of long-term antibiotics and all, all different things so you just have to try and balance them um, the right way but yeah it's, it has been a battle kind of over the years to try and find things and sometimes um, kind of jokingly like that some doctors have expected me to kind of know all this and obviously because I go I see different doctors in different departments sometimes um, I remember that one of the um, one of the bladder things especially was the ones that reduced the blood pressure mm-hmm. um, but the person I saw kind of my uh it's called pops it's a kind of a quite quite common comorbidity of having a connective tissue disorder yeah they were saying oh you really shouldn't be taking this but like I don't you know I'm not you know I, I've lived with my body obviously but I don't I'm not trained to know which medication is meant to be working with other ones so that's something that's made me laugh over the years but um yeah we're kind of getting there now we'll kind of backtrack to what you said about school and education um because we'll move on to the more like day-to-day challenges um so yeah. Yeah, go back to school I know one of the things that you want to talk about which may sound silly to other people is going to the toilet because, but some people might find it hard not to go to the toilet during a one hour or two hour lesson um but I know you um also struggled at school so was there any way that you kind of got away with it or did you have to kind of fight your way through to be able to go no, yeah, it's a good question. Um, so kind of the school thing is an interesting debate, I think. So when I was younger, kind of I made the choice to not really tell uh, my friends that much about, uh, you know, that some things, you know, like the way, you know, especially if I was wearing shorts and T-shirt in PE, they could see that my body was different to theirs. And, it, you know, it was it was kind of apparently obvious. Um, but one of the things I was, you know, I, I didn't really want them to know all of the details of all of the different operations or the appointments or you know like some of the medication things and obviously when I was uh, from seven I was using a catheter mm-hmm. uh, and I just didn't want to be kind of treated any differently I wanted to try and still have like a an inverted commas like a normal life I didn't want to have the kind of the sympathy or too much to that school uh, or just to be kind of treated differently um so kind of the the toilet thing is an interesting one especially probably more so at secondary school than at primary school because I think that primary school probably was more relaxed in general than mm. obviously secondary school but certainly yeah obviously from from 11 onwards um you know I, even up to kind of year 11 I still didn't tell my friends really like what was going on and and just kind of people that I knew at the school um so something that obviously was an issue was the like you've already kind of alluded to was the like the length of the lessons um and obviously at 14 or you know 13 you're kind of expected you know you're you're kind of seen as an adult in many ways um and they just would assume you could hang on like you know, if you need to go to twenty, you could hang on. Yeah. Um, but obviously, kind of like one of the key aspects of uh, of my condition is that the like the urge to pass urine off is kind of sometimes you can see it like an, a normal person would, and sometimes it kind of comes out of nowhere, and you just ha- you just have to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's a common problem. I think people with not only kind of bladder and kidney, but also kind of bowel problems as well. Like I think that you know the the need of saying that I need to go to the toilet can sometimes be very different to somebody that doesn't really need to go but they're just saying it so I think at school 
Um, and also as well, like, I mean, I'm not a shy person. I'm not bothered by anything like this. It doesn't make me blush or anything. But like for some people, obviously, it's, it, well, it is, it is a very personal thing, like mm. going to the toilet. So, you know, it was something that it made it harder to kind of explain to people because they were like, oh, how come David's allowed to go to the toilet halfway through? Or like, you know, and it kind of caused, like, I mean, it's only probably joking, like looking back at it now, but, you know, that was kind of something that was definitely like, um, I don't know, I, I took it well because I'm not really offended that easily, but I just think that there is a definite sort of um, issue, I think, with with people with kind of uh, like continence needs or, you know, for different reasons at, at school. And I think that um, schools could probably have a bit more awareness training on, you know, different, you know, not just rare disease, obviously, I mean, as in just kind of anybody that's either coming, recovering from surgery, they might have a temporary catheter or they might have, you know, like long-term bladder and kidney or, or um or bowel problems and um, I definitely think that you know schools could do with a bit more of a, of a training session um, I think that that's something that I'm actually quite passionate about because I wasn't too bad at mine it wasn't horrendous but um, certainly you know kind of from different communities I've seen on in the kind of bladder space uh, and also kind of the like bowel side of things um, you know I've heard some horror stories of like people just, people just not being able to go and I think that that you know schools could do a lot more I think that's something they could definitely improve on yeah definitely um and going back to what you just said obviously primary school is okay but secondary school is a bit harder mm-hmm. i think also the age you're at a secondary school when you're kind of like trying to i'll say find yourself but you know what i mean like develop yeah uh, i suppose that's also really difficult because you said you like didn't really tell people that you knew at school about your condition but i mean balancing that and going through like your teenage years that must be really mm-hmm. difficult yeah, like look, looking back on it now, like, I mean, you know, I was, I was lucky to have like a nice group of friends and, you know, wasn't like the most popular kid at school, but like certainly I didn't, you know, I was lucky I didn't get bullied or anything like that. Mm. I was just kind of like the average kid, I guess, at school, um, you know, and I think that, um, you know, I, I kind of chose to not tell people about it. I think obviously some people would have known, but like, I guess, um, you know, like when you, when you were changing at school for, for uh, PE, like obviously mm. people could maybe see the capital then, but like, um people people actually weren't too nosy I don't think it was too much of a thing um but you know I just didn't want to be kind of treated um like any differently but I think yeah I think as you get older you kind of understand your body a bit more and like you begin to kind of almost don't care what people think so much anymore yeah I think that's the trait of anyone as you get older you tend to not be swabbed <laughs> but um yeah certainly I think that I found it a lot easier at sixth form um to kind of cope with it and I did like uh you know secondary school and obviously kind of like my, my main group of friends came from sixth form um and that probably shows you that that's where I really kind of flourished and really enjoyed myself yeah definitely and like you know my, my friends you know like three of the friends you know three of my really close friends I met at sixth form um and like all of them are like incredibly supportive and really like have honestly done so much for me and it made my life you know at sixth form onwards so much easier yeah that's really nice and I suppose what age you when you go to sixth from like 16 so I think yeah you've, you've obviously gone through like the 13 to like 15 or 16 stage by then haven't you and I suppose obviously as you got older you knew more about your rare disease so I kind of kind of goes hand in hand really but yeah I think um obviously to kind of to say that obviously my my actual proper diagnosis came later but I mean in reality it's you know it's still treated the same sort of way as um my my original diagnosis if that makes sense but yeah I think kind of like kind of going through 
through sixth form and at university um I think obviously yeah, you know a lot more about yourself and you can kind of manage things a little bit easier um obviously it's still difficult like you're still you know like I didn't really find sixth form or university that stressful but um I think it's yeah it's just it's just trying to balance it a little bit more but yeah you certainly understand your body but I think a common thing with with rare diseases I don't know if you found this with with your condition but certainly with mine and some of the things that come with it is that you think that you like I, I think generally I manage my care pretty well um but sometimes it, it kind of catches you off guard out of nowhere and obviously it disrupts everything so like at school you know school uh, education has become quite difficult yeah yeah you know about your rare disease but anything could prop up and surprise you like well yeah. <laughs> I think once you've been diagnosed it's not just a oh here's your diagnosis off you go it's yeah Whole I think the kind of yeah like the aftercare of it is a lot is a lot more actually than just getting the diagnosis is kind of what happens afterwards yeah exactly for some, yeah for some yeah. people certainly Get on the toilet subject toilet subject um obviously just before we started recording we had a chat about uh your card you got given the rapid access card um mm -hmm. so could you just tell us what that is yeah um, so I'm not sure if, if people were kind of familiar with this before, but um, so I guess it's kind of in the same group of things as having a radar key. So obviously a radar key um, opens up disabled toilets in, in public. Um, so obviously they're used for a variety of things that, um, as far as I know, you know, it's um, quite a wide um, sort of spectrum of people that can use them. Um, but the, the rapid access card, I don't know how many people actually have them, but um, it's just basically a way of, you know, you can obviously use a disabled toilet, but if there's no kind of disabled toilets around or anything, um, basically it's a way that kind of shops are supposed to be able to let you use their toilets or if you're you know if you're waiting in the queue you know I don't know like at a football game or wherever it might be um, you can just basically jump to the front of the queue you can just show someone look I need to go before you like it's like desperate to go um, it's just a really small thing it literally is just like the size of a credit card um, and then yeah just use that I think it's just a, a small thing to have but um, if you if you think you're eligible to get one definitely look into it. Yeah I was gonna say I I'd never heard of it. Like, yeah, it's really interesting. Being yeah, I don't, know, I don't know how common that actually. Yeah, I, I know like kind of um, like blue badges and radar keys are kind of well known, like within the kind of disabled and rare disease and kind of long term uh, illness kind of community. But um, yeah, it's been really useful. It's just good. It's just good to have it. Yeah, definitely. I think it's like also can be more of like a safety thing as well, like knowing that you have it. Yeah, better as well. I think it's I think it's just a good thing to have. I think it just, um, you know, like, especially in different situations, obviously kind of pre-COVID where we were doing a lot more things. It's just a nice thing because obviously, like, it's just, um, it sounds silly, but it's like a validation or something. So, like, yeah. you could you could tell someone, oh, I need to go to the toilet, and it probably doesn't really mean anything. Whereas if you show him this card, it's like a bit of a, like, oh, he actually really, really does need to go. Yeah. So, um, it's just, well, yeah, it's just a small thing that actually, you know, I've never really had to use it, but it's just nice to know that, it, you know, just I just put it in my phone and that's it, so is there um on to the validation um aspect of it so a quote that i got sent today that the person asked is whether they could discuss it so i thought i'll just throw it open and see what you think the quote you don't look sick what do you think about it how do you react to it if someone just said that to you uh so yeah it's another good question i've never had a direct uh, uh a direct thing to say i don't look sick um i think that in terms of, like to maybe give an example i think sometimes maybe um like obviously i'm allowed to use uh, like priority seating on buses or trains or that kind of thing um and without i've got a license i don't have a car at the moment so if i've ever used um 
like a blue badge with a friend or my parents or something um sometimes if you don't like get out and use a wheelchair people give you a funny look sometimes like, i've had that before i've not had you know I, i've seen some people have uh, kind of quite horrendous experience people leaving horrible notes in their car windscreens or, mm -hmm. or different things or people saying to them on the bus so um the the don't look sick thing is an interesting one isn't it because i think that um so like for ordinarily i don't use a wheelchair i don't use a stick um i do have a, a stick that i use occasionally um i probably should use it more than i actually do but i've you know just chosen not to do that um but i certainly find that it makes sense because when i've used the stick um you know kind of again pre-covid like more so like as soon as you got on a train like especially like on a in un like on the underground train um people just used to get up and or I'd, or i would ask someone you know can i sit down um, but, you know, obviously, as a kind of like man in his early 30s, most people wouldn't think to give up a seat for me unless I've got the, the stick or something that's like a validation that you that you look sick. So it's a little bit different. So, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I think that um, obviously kind of the like the um, like ambulatory disabled people that, you know, that don't use a wheelchair sometimes or, or like a, an aid of some kind, mm -hmm. um, sometimes it can be quite difficult and obviously, um, like the spectrum of disabilities and things is so vast like not everybody uses a wheelchair it's, it's a huge yeah. um, array of people like with different conditions some may be obvious some might not be some might be in the middle so yeah it's, a, it's an interesting one definitely but obviously you don't want to have look like you like you have a label of oh I'm the one that's sick or I have disability yeah. or whatever but then often that because you don't look sick it can make it hard for other people to understand because I suppose like if I'll use the example of, like if you broke your leg mm -hmm. it's obvious that you don't need it might need a seat on a train but then yeah but then equally a lot most people don't want to look different do they so I suppose it's difficult like you can't really get the balance right no no I think and maybe that probably goes back to like my my education again is that you know I've always wanted to try and live like a normal life as much as possible um i think as i've kind of got older i've become like more interested in like the advocacy advocacy side of things and obviously you know i'm working in rare disease now and you know that's been awesome and i you know really enjoying that um but obviously kind of pre-doing that um you know i was always doing my own thing but i think that um yeah it's it's a tricky one trying to sort of blend in and still still do stuff but yeah like sometimes it's almost like you get punished for trying to do stuff like you know just because you have any condition doesn't necessarily mean you can't do something i think that's probably an interesting point it's it is a difficult one as i said and it's i suppose like hard to balance at times but yeah no i think i think as well like because uh, uh and my condition especially and loads of conditions you can change really quickly so like mm -hmm. probably probably less as I've got older I think when I was younger more so you know I'd be kind of um like fine one minute and then awful the next day um and I guess kind of now even with infections it becomes like that um but yeah I think that you know that's the thing isn't it they are so hidden um and yeah you just can't you just can't really predict your health so yeah like you know you have to do what's best for you I, I try and live my life like positively as much as I can because I think that's just how I've chosen to do it and um, but you know everyone's got their own way of Kind of coping with it and that's you know that's cool yeah i was gonna say it's difficult for everyone involved isn't it i suppose obviously for the individual and then friends or family trying to understand it a lot of people understand more of it's visual don't they but 
that's I think that's the thing obviously like in in the UK it's like one in 17 people so like kind of a thought I had the other day was you know you know through through work and through the volunteer side of things and you know the things that I've done in the rare space uh, obviously I've met lots of different people and yeah, it's been really interesting actually but what I didn't think about is all the people that maybe aren't so involved in the advocacy side of things but obviously have a rare disease you know they would walk past me in the street and I wouldn't necessarily know so it makes you yeah. realize kind of like that, that's the whole point I guess of rare diseases that collectively all of our conditions are rare ultra rare or somewhere in the middle um but like as a whole it's not actually rare I was gonna say like one in 17 people I don't know maybe like a primary school class now there's like 30 in each class. yeah that's at least one potentially two yeah each class well, that's so at least probably <laughs> when you think of it like that yeah, no, I think that's probably that's probably the way. And I think in America, obviously, the stats are slightly different. I think it's one in ten uh, yeah, in America have a rare disease. So, um, yeah, like you know, when you when you think of it like that, I, mean, I think it's three hundred million w- uh, worldwide yeah. have a rare disease. So actually, when when you start kind of expanding the numbers, actually, it sounds very different. And you know, that's the whole point, isn't it? It's just that you know, collectively, your own thing is you know very rare in itself. But when you add all of them up together it kind of becomes less rare. I think that you, you see more of that now. I think the kind of rare disease movement is getting is getting stronger and, you know, kind of patient groups doing lots of good work and uh, different kind of governments are all pushing with like rare disease strategies and things. So hopefully kind of things like continue to move forward with it. Awareness is another thing you wanted to talk about. Um, obviously pre-COVID, people are travelling, but having to go to hospital in a different place to where you usually have your appointments can be difficult can't it because obviously as you said you're feeling you're most vulnerable and having new doctors or nurses or whoever caring for you is really hard so do you want to tell us a bit about that um yeah so um obviously over the years i've been to lots of different places which is cool um you know i've been to hospital in in america as well as obviously lots of different places in the uk you can't always get ill where you're normally like where you're normally seen so yeah, I've been to kind of you know A and E and a few few different cities, and um, quite often they look at my or firstly they try and ask me what's wrong. And normally, if I'm in A and E, I can probably barely function with the words properly, so I might be able to mumble it. But you know that you know when I'm at my worst, I can barely say anything. So sometimes, obviously, you're like you know you can kind of communicate normally and you can explain it. Um, but sometimes, if it's something maybe you haven't had before, or like a very severe version of something um that you've maybe tried to avoid going but it's got worse like you can it's quite hard to function um so that's something that i found difficult and obviously the like the condition i have is so rare like nobody really understands it you know there's no um there's no specialist really in the world for it anyway so it's always been a learning curve but yeah kind of when you end up in you know like manchester or like bristol hospital or something you know they're not going to know like i'm not even seen there so they're not they're not going to have any idea mm-hmm. so you, you try and give them a rough idea and um this is why uh, actually my dad's made it for me um a few years ago now he obviously definitely needs an update but um i think now it's become more of a formal thing but it's like a health passport so um basically it's just like a kind of sheet that you put in your bag or you know wherever you want to put it um and just um i guess it's kind of similar to the app on um on the iphones it's like the health app where you put in like what blood type you are um you know kind of what your diagnosis is um any allergies or like any major operations that you've had just so that if you kind of find yourself in that situation where you might be by yourself or might be someone doesn't really know you very well um and it just makes life a lot easier and actually just um 
an example. <laughs> a couple of years ago, um, when I was at work, um, I was uh, really quite unwell. One of my colleagues, um, Catherine, sent <laughs> me to A and E, and obviously I probably frightened the life out of her. But you know, I, um, it's you know, it's difficult to explain to somebody exactly what you have, and she she knew it. She knew she knew a bit about me, you know. And I put you know, it feels like I'm putting somebody under a lot of pressure then. But actually, you know, I didn't bring that sheet with me, and that makes me think that you know. Um, it just makes life so much easier if you can just have some sort of information on you. You, know, you don't have to have like a dictionary of different things, but just like you know, a couple of sheets of paper, just you know, roughly what your condition is, maybe how it affects you. Um, any allergies, probably quite an important one. Any um, long-term medications that you take, just so that if you find yourself in that situation where you're at an A&E that has absolutely no idea what condition you have or has never seen anyone with it. Um, just it just makes their life a little bit easier and obviously it makes your life easier as well because you don't have to do as much talking they can just read it and they can probably ask you some questions from that rather than having to give your life story when you get there <laughs> it's not that we need every doctor and nurse to know about every rare disease like you said I think it's just having that awareness that there are so many different conditions so it's just kind of knowing how to react and maybe what the right questions to ask are yeah I think it's sometimes I think it's um you know it's very I don't think maybe more than three or four times in my life I've been to Amy by myself I've tended to be with like partner or parents or friends or whoever it might be um but like I think it's just the awareness of sometimes that um you know like you've already kind of said like when it sometimes can be hard enough talking about your disease normally let alone like um you know when you're in a lot of pain or you've not slept very well or you you know for whatever reason that you're at, you're at pain in the first place you're, you're vulnerable as it is and you probably don't have the capacity sometimes to explain it um and also i think another thing um this is definitely not to critique doctors in any way but sometimes when they ask you what's wrong sometimes you don't know how much detail to go in um because yeah, i you know sometimes i get cut short and other times they ask you a million more follow-up questions so sometimes it's trying to find the balance of like how much do you need to tell them but also not like so that you're wasting your own time I think so I think the one of the things um, I guess from, from my experience kind of and um, before it was obvious what it actually was um, like my resting pulse and uh, blood pressure is quite low and obviously that's this part of this condition called POTS mm. um, and sometimes um, obviously it went really low once which wasn't to do with POTS but um, they kind of wasn't really sure if that was normal or you know different readings they, they wasn't sure because obviously if they're not a specialist in a renal thing for kidneys or whatever, whatever reason it might be or they were unsure of how the catheter works because it's slightly different um you know the the mitrofenoff that i have which is the procedure of catheter is kind of slightly more unusual than like the average thing so sometimes yeah when you do have a rare condition and then you have kind of unusual things on top of that it kind of it exacerbates the problem a little bit a travel insurance again obviously on the same line as travel not that we can travel at the moment but um mm-hmm. yeah what have you found with travel insurance and having um yeah no another good question i think that i'll definitely be like hundreds of thousands of other people with the same problem um so one like the first problem i had is obviously um since the the sort of more formal diagnosis of something a bit different um it doesn't show up in any obviously you know, when you search for car insurance or travel insurance, you put your data in. Obviously, with the travel insurance, uh, you put in your condition in, and it doesn't show anything up. So you always have to, like, I've never done it um, over over the internet. I've always had to do it 
um, via phone call. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of, you, you tell them what you have, they ask some questions and then they say, oh, we'll, we'll get our insurance underwriters to check that for you. Uh, so they kind of go back and they give you a call back in 10 minutes or something. Uh, and they normally just come up with a ridiculous figure, like, oh, that'll be £4,000 a year or something. Um, so obviously I ignore that. And then basically you end up having to phone loads of different people to try and do it. So I've had loads that won't even insure me because it's like, I guess it's like having a really, really expensive car that they don't think that you could like, you could handle. So it's the same thing, like they just won't insure you or they just come up with ridiculous quote. You know, I've had ones that are like more than 4,000 and I'm just like, well, obviously I'm not going to be paying that to go, you know, for a yearly travel thing. Um, the one now actually isn't too bad. I think it might have had a bit of a push. I don't actually know an awful lot about it, but I'm wondering whether there was a kind of... Um, kind of uh, like investigation into into travel insurance for people with with disabilities and things because I've noticed now it hasn't become quite as ridiculous I mean it's still very expensive but um, it depends I think if you get like a yearly one uh, it kind of works out a bit better Um, but yeah kind of it is quite difficult because you're kind of telling the people your life story and obviously like it feels obviously really you're getting penalized for having more things wrong with you if that you know obviously that's how insurance works I get that but um yeah I think it's just frustrating because um like I think if you you know uh, when I went to uh, Vienna uh, last um last December with my girlfriend um I realized actually that I needed to to update the travel insurance so I had to do I left it so last minute. I mean, I literally did it in the hotel the night before, but in the <laughs> from Stansted Hotel, we did it. Um, and you know, I found one in the end. But sometimes it feels like, um, you know, like when we could obviously travel easier. You know, like people used to go on like kind of mini breaks and things and get really good deals for, or like a week holiday. They used to get really good deals to go somewhere like Spain or maybe Greece or something. Um, and obviously now, when you add on the, the sort of travel insurance cost, it actually your insurance is costing more than your holidays yeah um so it kind of takes the novelty away of having like a cheap or cheapish getaway because it's not cheap because your 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 travel insurance is actually more than what your um what the holiday costs sometimes i think it's 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 difficult because obviously um like they'll have a kind of health advisors i guess that, that work for them um but you know what i find annoying is that they'll they'll just go on google and they'll just try and find yeah. some information about it um, and they'll just make a number up. I'm sure the number is just completely random because the quotes that I've had have ranged quite drastically. I've had some obviously stupid ones and then some ones that are like fairly reasonable. You kind of accept it. It's not going to, you know, like when when I was younger, when kind of went away with friends a bit more, um, you know, they could get insurance for £20 or about that kind of thing where, you know, if you don't have any pre-existing conditions, it's hardly anything. Mm. Um, it's almost just like a tiny admin fee just to say that you've got the insurance. Um, but yeah, obviously if you're, if you're doing kind of a, like a worldwide travel insurance with uh, like rare or chronic conditions, it can be really expensive. And I think that the reason why, another reason why it's so frustrating is just like, like you say, you, it just takes the fun away of doing it. You want to go for like a last minute holiday or, you know, but actually it's not that cheap because obviously you're still, you know, mine is okay, but I'm sure some people's are ridiculous or just won't even be able to get injured. And then you feel bad it costs so much, but then sometimes it costs more than the actual holiday yeah yeah hopefully we'll be able to travel at some point so that'll be oh yeah let's hope so i think definitely some more awareness again not with every rare disease but like you said you're probably getting random quotes and i suppose maybe you're right plus they have 
got some more like procedures or policies in place about disability or rare disease but yeah yeah maybe some more awareness around I don't, I don't know what the correct answer is but yeah I don't know nor do I really <laughs> and another thing I don't know if this is really relevant to it but sometimes it actually made me think well quite often a lot of people that have pre-existing conditions are like better managing their health than the healthy person because like nine out of ten times we probably know what's wrong and we just need like we just need them to do this or like hospitals to do something for us or to to get medication or whatever it is but that's the thing like we know our bodies most of the time if you're living with kind of chronic and rare conditions you you tend to you know like as you say as you get older especially you kind of know what it is and also like parents and children like with rare conditions like that care for them like they they probably know what it is that's wrong and just need some help but obviously we just pay so much money and it's it's already on cost uh, you know I'm, I'm quite lucky in the sense that my kind of my cost of having a rare disease are quite low mm. whereas some people kind of you know have to get uh, taxis everywhere like maybe to hospital they're probably paying for specialist equipment that's not covered by uh, like sort of local government or you know things like getting ramps and um, all the different kind of aids that people might have uh, within their house or like where they are and, you know I'm, I'm fortunate that I don't have to pay for that kind of um, part of my life but um, I just think that it's already like it's just like an, another cost of being like disabled or having a rare disease. I was gonna say whether you have to pay for everything or not it kind of just like piles up and up doesn't it and so yeah it's just you don't want to pay for or just an inconvenience more than anything else yeah absolutely <laughs> it's expensive isn't it so yeah um before we finish i um, just want to touch on your advocacy works so obviously you work in the rare disease charity sector as well um so do you remember like when you first started doing advocacy work yeah so um and the first i guess the first proper way i got involved in in anything kind of health uh, advocacy related was uh I think about seven years ago I started doing some volunteer work for Great Ormond Street Hospital so mm-hmm. uh, growing up that's where I spent a lot of time I had a lot of operations there and that was where I was seen for lots of different things um, obviously wanted to give something back I didn't have the kind of money to give them but uh, at that point in my time um, I had sort of time to give them rather than rather than money um, so I started doing a few different things there and was involved uh, in a couple of groups and um, did different things for them basically then I started to do kind of uh, as became like an ambassador so did kind of asked to dinner speeches um, so talking about kind of where the fundraising for that event you know what it was used for within the hospital um, and then also like kind of second part of it was kind of uh, sharing with the, the, the event you know what um, some of my experiences of growing up there not growing up there but you know having spent a lot of time there and you know some of the services that I used and also like some of the things that like people don't know there's um, a private school actually within the hospital which is uh, always done really well with Ofsted and everything and um, my parents used to use they have like um, an accommodation as well uh, at the hospital just just a few streets away for parents that maybe um, can't kind of get home and come back in the next day so just kind of like just to make it a bit easier for people and um, certainly when I had my catheter fitted um, like my parents stayed close by and we had to kind of do a few sessions with my mum and dad to teach them how to help me with it and so just like obviously just um, all the kind of the good things that you know that happened there and I've always got a good thing to say about them so kind of started doing that and obviously that led to the kind of the public speaking thing I didn't really plan to do it and just kind of fell into doing it I did what I asked um, if I could do one um, and obviously they you know they were quite a big audiences always well over 100 people um, done some huge ones for sort of six seven hundred people which were good um, and I just you know really enjoyed it 
um then did a few kind of obviously like living on the edge of cambridge obviously cambridge is a big uh, rare disease hub uh, kind of and like the pharma and the biotech world that's one of the sort of main three cities in the uk where everything happens so obviously there's lots of uh, rare disease events in cambridge um primarily find a cure uh, and cambridge rare disease network who i'm sure a lot of your readers will be familiar with um did a couple of talks there and kind of talking about um, I guess kind of a similar thing in some ways of what we spoke about, like maybe like the, the diagnostic odyssey as it's called and um, some some more things informally about, yeah, again, education, what it's like to work with a rare disease, um, how you found like friendships and all, all the different things that maybe come with it. Um, so I started doing some of that and then um, obviously I've been working for Rare Evolution magazine um, for coming up to three years now, which has been really good. Um, obviously really enjoy meeting all the different people so you obviously work with some of the pharma and biotech companies and then um, individuals living with a rare disease and people uh, from different patient groups across the world and like researchers um, like kind of medical device and technology companies yeah it's really 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 interesting um, yeah I've had a great time so far that because you were also as you said giving back to Great Ormond Street is really important as well especially when they have other things like the school and accommodation um, because that probably helps people more than they realise it. Just as an actually, so um, recently I've become a trustee um, of Mitrofenoff Support UK. So um, that's another cause that I'm obviously very passionate about. So uh, it's a, a charity set up to help people with, um, with the, type, the type of capital that I have. So, you know, obviously I've used it for uh, nearly 26 years now. So obviously quite a long time. Um, and obviously it helps um, you know people that have had it before or people like parents that their children might be having it so something that you know now as I'm an adult properly you know and I've lived with it for a long time um, I've you know it hasn't been perfect it's obviously the the kind of capital channels got blocked lots of times I've had to have it repaired and you know but essentially it's, it's kept me alive um, and obviously extremely grateful for you know being able to use it and that now I think that as a trustee like um obviously it's, it's important that we raise awareness of what the charity does and all the usual things but also it's nice um on a personal level to kind of meet uh different people with uh the mitra off and i made a couple of nice friends from that already which is great um and also just like i really want to try and help like other um people that might be having it so people that maybe just had it recently they're a bit unsure about it um I, I spoke to some parents before about kind of explaining some you know how it works and how like they had some questions for me like how it changes when you get older and you know like going through puberty and different kind of key points in your life like how it how it might affect you so um yeah I'm really pleased that you know I've started that trustee role and it's another thing that you know hopefully I can make a bit of a difference. And I think that role will be really good for you because you can come from so different perspectives and mm -hmm. obviously help patients themselves and parents obviously it can affect families just as much as the individual um yeah yeah, I think a lot of people can learn from like, the experience you had. Um, oh, um, but finally, the, what three words would you use to sum up your rare disease? Uh, I think confusing would probably be um, a good one to start with. I think yeah. that, you know, um, it's, it's been uh, obviously confusing trying to learn about the, the condition and how it affects kind of everything, really. So, you know, I've learned more really about some of the more common parts, especially the kind of bladder and kidney things, but mm -hmm. uh, essentially it affects everything. And obviously it's, it will change no doubt as I get older and um, I don't really try and dwell too much on the future of it. I just kind of 
will approach that when it comes but obviously no doubt it will change in 10-15 years so I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just have to accept that when it comes. Um, interesting which is probably a weird way of looking at it but actually from an outside perspective it probably is quite interesting and I, and I still find it interesting myself and yeah. you know bodies are confusing uh, everybody's body is amazingly confusing so when you've got something that doesn't work the way that everyone else's body works and yeah it becomes I think it becomes interesting and for a third word I don't it's not really like a word as such but like um and that, you know it's not not a blessing as such because that's I am, I'm not religious it's not that kind of thing but what I'm saying is I think that like as a result of having this rare disease um you know from from different stage I think it's probably like made me uh the person that I am now obviously kind of very passionate about you know all of the work that I do it's not about helping me it's about helping or trying to kind of raise the voice of anybody living with um a health condition uh, whether it's rare or not rare um I think that's kind of an important thing um I hope that it's kind of given me a better uh, perspective on life maybe a bit more empathetic about things um uh, yeah just I think that it's probably you know having this realistically if I didn't have a rare disease I wouldn't be doing the work uh, that I'm doing obviously now uh, and obviously very grateful for, to, for working for the magazine because that completely changed my life in terms of uh, being able to work properly and mm-hmm. have an understanding team and boss especially it's made life uh, you know a million times easier um so yeah I just think that you know I found something that you know that I enjoy doing and I like making a difference or hope I'm making a difference um, through, through the different things that I do and obviously you know I would I realistically wouldn't be doing that if I didn't have health conditions so it's not really a word and obviously life-changing isn't or a blessing doesn't really fit the word I'm trying to say but that's kind of where I'm going with it is that I think that having having these conditions has has led me into doing this and it's maybe kind of like destiny or fate again if you believe in that that kind of thing where you you didn't know where you were going to end up but probably this is probably the best thing for me definitely and I I use the word perspective a lot but as you said like you can see things from a different side to people without rare disease and you can you know teach people about things and in all different roles help yeah so yeah yeah I I think I think it's um another just to kind of finish I think a lot of the time um I, I know I've certainly spoken to lots of different people and they said something similar is that obviously everybody's rare disease has an overlap in some ways I guess but one of the main thing is you can learn like from anybody with a rare disease so somebody with a rare disease in say like Canada that's in their 50s could learn loads from somebody with a rare disease at seven living in Australia like there's so much like overlap and doesn't matter where you live like there'll always be some sort of similarity and things that you can learn. And on that note thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast today I've really enjoyed talking to you thank you very much yeah no thank you Katie obviously it's always a pleasure to speak to you and um, hopefully it's been an interesting listen for your for your podcast and uh, yeah thank you very much appreciate it thank you